In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Amen. Please sit. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me, so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I want to welcome you on this busy Sunday when we look forward to a conversation with Nora after church in a little while about white supremacy and the importance of the Christian voice and witness against it. I want to welcome you on this Sunday when we still grieve the violence that is happening in the world, especially in the Middle East, when some of us bring our own sadnesses and our own griefs and our own concerns, However you've come this morning and whatever you've brought with you, I'm glad you're here and so is God. I hunted around in the readings this week and I want to tell you that at first I decided I was going to preach on the psalm because it's so nice. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the whole earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Isn't that lovely? It's like upbeat, positive. But instead, as the week wore on, God pulled me toward that piece of Isaiah that I just read to you and that Jean read earlier. And of course, we always talk about the gospel. And I wonder if you'll just think for a minute in your own head, thematically, about what you think the gospel and Isaiah have in common this morning. What are they driving at? Jesus having this conversation about Caesar and Isaiah, Isaiah prophesying for God. Both of these texts are about power and influence and what I'm going to call this morning the supremacy of God. In the gospel today, there is a union of two unlikely groups. The Pharisees and the Herodians are two different groups of people, and they are not friends. They are not natural allies. The Pharisees, we know probably a little bit better, they're the religious elites. They're the rule-following, box-checking, severe, and often savage leaders of the Jewish people who are criticized over and over again, especially by Jesus. And the Herodians are what they sound like. They are the supporters of Herod's rule, who, if you remember, is the corrupt Jewish king who's sort of a turncoat. He has been put in power by the emperor, so he's kind of a tool of Caesar, but he sort of rules over his own people in a pretty hurtful, corrupt kind of way. And yet there is this group of people who think, well, he's in power, so, you know, if we follow him, maybe we get some nice perks from that. And they're called the Herodians. Two groups of people, each with their own agendas, not allies, not friends. And yet, The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so here they are sort of making merry, sending their disciples off together to try and trick Jesus. Now we have to remember at this point in Matthew's gospel that nothing can be taken out of this overarching conflict that is happening. That is the context 
of all the stories we've heard recently and of the next few as well. Jesus is in Jerusalem and he is having this last conflict with the religious elites. He is days away, even though it doesn't feel like it to us because of the part of the year that we're in. In terms of the gospel chronology, he is days away from being killed by Rome for being a political dissident, for being a political threat. So this conversation, this effort to entrap Jesus, is part of this overarching, ongoing struggle. And the ruling religious elites, many of whom are complicit with the empire and the oppression of their own people, are here to try to trick him into saying something, probably to get him killed, or at the very least to get him in trouble, so that they can move him off the chessboard, so that they can kind of go on with their lives without him. They are hoping that he will say something treasonous that they can report back on that will get him in trouble and get him arrested. And so they ask him this question, hoping that he will trip up. Because as you might imagine, Rome was not really excited about people who said things against the emperor. Now, we can't look at this little scene without acknowledging that this particular conversation has been taken out of context at least a million and a half times. It's probably one of the most famous things that Jesus ever said, and it's easily one of the most misunderstood because folks like to really completely lift it out of this context at the end of Matthew's gospel in this great conflict between Jesus and the religious elites, and they like to ascribe all kinds of anachronistic things to it that do not make any sense that Jesus was not talking about. Folks like to point at this and make big sweeping statements about governments, about economies, about capitalism, about all kinds of things that Jesus was not talking about. Perhaps one of the most kind of normal conclusions about this passage is that we can just separate politics and government from the spiritual completely. Those are two completely different things. Never shall they meet, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Nothing to do with each other. No, not quite. Instead, Jesus is doing two very specific things here. First, he's showing these folks that he is smart enough. He knows what they're doing. He's not gonna say something dumb that gets him arrested today because it's not time yet. He's not gonna fall for their little trick. He's gonna say something that at least superficially is beyond reproach. But as is always true for Jesus, there's this superficial level the one that you could sort of settle for if you're lazy or you're not interested or you're not paying attention. And then there's what happens underneath, and that is always where Jesus is teaching us something else. There is always something under the surface that Jesus is trying to tell us, and today it is about power and it is about God. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You can understand why people may have wanted to make that into all kinds of other statements, right? It sounds fairly logical. It is his head on the coin, after all. So it must be his. The problem with that is that it completely negates all of the history of the Jewish people. It completely negates the context of, of Jesus as a faithful Jewish person who would not have believed in the authority of Caesar. Remember that these people had been struggling for years with occupation and oppression. They're on the brink of rebellion 
and every fiber of their being rejects the fact that Rome has authority over them in the land that God has given to them. It's easy for us to read the text and see it being very flat, but this conflict was alive, and it was violent, and it was very, very present. They believed in their hearts that God was going to act and eventually force Rome out. And we can see that in contemporary literature, and we can see it even as some of our texts are written a little bit later in the development of Christian communities. We continue to see, especially by the time you get to Revelation, this deep desire to, for Rome to kind of get their comeuppance, for Rome to be pushed out and punished. It's very present in our canon. And so Jesus saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, it sort of gets him off the hook in terms of the fact that they're trying to trap him publicly. But underneath that first superficial layer, the truth is that there is nothing, not a single speck of sand in that region that belongs to Caesar according to Jesus or to these people. Not a single thing. Now, on the flip side, give to God the things that are God's. Well, what isn't God's? What doesn't belong to the one omnipotent, omniscient, living God? Give to God the things that are God's becomes a huge statement because everything is God's. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything that we are, everything that was created, every single thing, the land, our food, the animals, everything, all of us, everything belongs to God. So I rather think that what Jesus is actually doing here isn't necessarily asking to whom the coin belongs or to whom the money belongs or to whom the power belongs because he's pretty clear. We hear him in many other places in scripture pointing out that everything is God's. Everything came from God and eventually everything goes back to God. And what he's really doing is tossing this question back at them as if to say, who do you belong to? Who have you sold yourself to for this coin, for some power? Why are you here peddling these things against me? And for whom? And of course, he's talking to the religious elites who have sold themselves either to Herod or to this idea of religious zeal as savior. Who have they designated their allegiances to other than God? Where have they built their security and their sense of identity? rather than with God. And of course, you all know me well enough and you know scripture well enough, I hope, by now to know that it's never just talking to the people in the passage, right? It's always talking to us. And so to us this morning, Jesus says, to whom do you belong? Where do you belong? What has captured your heart? To whom have you given your allegiance? Are you occupied, and I'm using that word intentionally, are you occupied by the things of this world, by the forces of this world, by the movements of this world that really either aren't important, will pass away, or are poorly, badly intentioned, like these two groups that are trying to capture Jesus? Are you empowered and enlivened and fulfilled by the things of God? Do you give your hearts and your prayers and your love and all that you have back to God, knowing that it all came from God to begin with? This is always part of the invitation in the gospel, right? 
And we come back consistently to this idea that to know Jesus is to know God. And to know God intimately is to want then to learn how to live and to love like Jesus, to want to put our whole heart in it, to want to follow him, and to want to use all that we have and all that God has given us to build that vision of justice and mercy and love, that peaceable kingdom that we hear about in scripture, that great feast where there is room for everyone and a seat at the table for all living people. So today after church, as you know, we're gonna have a conversation with Nora about a particular movement in this world that has occupied and claimed quite a few hearts and hands and land and power. Like Caesar's rule, it is illegitimate and it is, I think, as hateful and as broken as Caesar's empire. It occupies with violence and rage and it is full of sin. And we're gonna talk, I hope, and I hope that you will continue to think in the days ahead about the place that you have in the fight against that movement and the fight against white supremacy. We're gonna talk about the progressive Christian voice, your voice, our voice, the voice of the church, the voice of people who would stand up and say no. Now, if you read Nora's book or listened to it like I did, Hi, Mom of Two, driving, mostly, sitting at my desk. Or if you read the press at the time, you might know that there were some Christian pastors and bishops, maybe you saw the pictures, of preachers and teachers and professors who showed up to march against this movement, to call it out that day with their bodies and with their hope and with their mind and with the tools that God gave them, they countered the evil of that occupation and they said to all who would listen, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Meaning, give this movement what it deserves, which is nothing. Instead, fight to throw it off the way an occupied people would fight an oppressor fight to put it down the way an occupied people would fight to remove their emperor, their leader, their illegitimate ruler, their abuser. Give it not an inch of land or fuel or help, but stand instead for the truth that all people belong to God. All people, regardless of color or race or history or ethnicity, all people, regardless of gender or orientation or socioeconomic status or power or prestige, all people are God's beloved. We say that every week here in this space, and yet the world continues to offer these distractions and movements and occupations that section us off and teach us to fear and differentiate and show partiality, which, by the way, I love that, right? They go ask Jesus. They're trying to trap him, and they butter him up first. We know that you're sincere. We know that you show no partiality, meaning you see people as people, as if by complimenting him, they can trick him. They cite his very strength, that he loves people for who they are. Give to God the things that are God's. Claim for God the things that are God's. And in this case, that's an invitation for us to be claiming freedom and justice and mercy. 
And also, if you listen to that text from Isaiah, it's an invitation to claim strength and the willingness to fight evil wherever it appears. Give to God the things that are God's, which is all of you, all of us, all of what we have, all of who we are, our very best efforts, our whole hearts, our time and our resources, and the acknowledgement that every blessing that we have came from this one source. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me, so that, you, so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. In context, Jesus and his contemporaries would have heard and would have understood that Caesar was no God, that evil is no God. And for us, we have to be very mindful of all those things that go on in the world that would distract us, that would occupy us, that would take us away and identify them as no God, for there is only one. And that God has armed you with the most powerful thing in the world, with love and the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that all may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that God is God, that everything belongs to God and that there is no other. Amen.